1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. We are continuing in the discussion of the resurrection. We went through the beginning of chapter 15. You have the summary of the gospel, verses 1 to 11. Then you have from 12 up to 34, a defense of the logic of the resurrection and how if you deny the resurrection, that means that you deny the gospel. There's a showing of the internal coherence of the gospel and the incoherence of those who claim to believe the gospel while denying the resurrection. Verse 35 continues with objections, and the first set of objections uh, that Paul puts forward are showing the incoherence of the position that denies the resurrection. Here now, he is responding to objections from those who deny the resurrection. So verse 35 says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? These are sort of two ways of asking the same question. What manner of resurrection is there? What kind of body is it that's resurrected? What are we talking about? Now, verse 36 responds by saying, Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So Paul is saying the objection seems to be rooted in this idea that our future bodies will be the same sorts of bodies, that they will be flesh and blood that breathe and eat and sleep, which those things could be true. But the issue is you look at the current body and you think this body is a weak thing. How could this possibly last very long? Now, we are taught in other passages of Scripture that the comparison between the current body and that which is to come is like the comparison between a tent and a mansion. The depreciation schedule on tents is much faster than the depreciation schedule on mansions because you expect for the tent to not last as long. Now, at the same time, when you think about this idea of the change, the analogy that's put forward here is the analogy of a seed. Our current bodies are like a seed or a grain that is put into the ground. And in comparison, the body which will be resurrected is like the body of a plant or of a flower. Or you think about a wheat going into the ground and the wheat plant that comes up and the bearing of the wheat. The difference between its plant and the seed is dramatic. And so a seed form of the body is what we currently have. So the analogy of a seed to a plant. Now, this idea of the burial of the seed is symbolically a sort of death. Okay, when you bury something, it's dead. So this putting of a seed into the ground is a symbolic death of the seed. And so our bodies, as they die, we know that the resurrection will be like not so much the old body as the plant that we would expect to grow from the seed. And we get some of the foreshadowings of this when we see the transfiguration of Christ and we see his resurrected state and the way he is. And so some of the things that happen there are things that give us some sense of what is to come. Verse 39 says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. And so this idea that flesh, bodies that are animate, are different constructions. They're very different. As you think about the different kinds of flesh that exist, you know, we, we think about fish, for example, and them having a structure to be able to pull 
oxygen out of water, uh, gills being able to support off, be supported off of that. The different kinds of things that can happen are fairly dramatic. So we have, first of all, the analogy from grain to the plant. And then we have the analogy of there are lots of kinds of flesh even in the current order under the curse that gives us a great sense of the diversity of the possible structures of fleshly bodies. Now, hey, uh, sorry, verse 40. There are also celestial bodies, heavenly, and terrestrial bodies, earthly. But the glory of the celestial is one, the heavenly is one, and the glory of the terrestrial, the earthly, is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. Okay, so think about this. He's just given us three analogies. Here are the three analogies. One, look around at the creation in terms of the structures of matter that you see now. Does God's capacity to create diverse material structures cause you to shut your mouth yet? When you think about this, like, okay, how about seed to plant? All right, fine, fine, fine. How about the different types of meat? Okay, great. Now, how about earthly versus heavenly? Okay, heavenly. Let's look at that. Subcategories. Moon, stars, sun. Okay, let's look at this. Zoom in on the stars for a second. Different types of stars. Does the diversity of the structures yet make you pause and shut your mouth in trying to say, resurrection, I don't know, seems like a bit much. So that's the point that Paul is doing here. He's got the three analogies, the, the diversity of the heavenly versus the earthly bodies, the diversity inside of the category of the heavenly, and the diversity inside of the subcategory star. And so the different glory of these objects, when we think about the glory, the glory of these objects is their attribute set, the difference of attributes that they have. Now, you can also, there are visible differentiations. I mean, looking at the dirt on the ground is of a different kind of experience than looking at the sun. Right? So one of them hurts your eyes if it gets in your eyes. The other one hurts your eyes if you look at it. Right? And so we have this difference of their apparent glory, but we have the difference in terms of their actual structure, their design, what they are, what their nature is. So Paul is giving to us the array of created material things to point to, to cause us to stop and think before we object to the idea of the resurrection as seeming beyond the power of God. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. So the resurrection of the dead is like a plant and seed comparison, is like the different types of flesh, is like the different types of earthly and heavenly bodies. We have this capacity of God in the structuring of the material things. So also is the resurrection of the body. The body is sown in corruption. Right? It's mortal and it's decayable. It is raised in incorruption. Immortal, without decay. It is sown in dishonor. Death is a humiliation. 
It is raised in glory. Resurrection is a glory. It is sown in weakness. It's able to die. It's weak. It is raised in power. Incapable of dying. It is sown a natural body. And this is for all those who are dyers, all those who are mortal. It's sown as a natural body, a fleshly, uh, a, a, a soulish body. And we have there this pointer to the idea of not just the natural man in himself, but natural in the sense of with the sin nature. And it is raised a spiritual body. And that line, that verse has caused much confusion. The heavenly man or the spiritual man is used for all sorts of heresies. Okay, there's an elaborate book called uh, The Heavenly Man by Watchman Nee that is meant to try to build off of this, off of a tripartite view of man where you have the body and the soul and the spirit. And he grabs hold of this and tries to suggest that man has a material body, has an animal soul, and has a rational spirit. And that is also the base for the heresy called Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism is a Christological heresy that teaches that Jesus has a human body, a human soul with animal spirits, and then has the God mind just plugged into that. So no human mind, just the God mind plugged into that. And so this is an old way of reading this, but Watchman Nee uh, wrote a book on it that has, is popular in Pentecostal and Charismatic circles. So, the heavenly man takes this chapter and distorts it. So what I want you to understand is what's being talked about when you see the, the natural or soulish body. Okay, it's sown a natural body. And the, the Greek word there is Psychicon. So the word like for a psychologist, also the word for a psychic, but the root word there, psyche, the soul, a psychologist is supposed to be somebody who studies the soul. And so this idea of the natural man, the soulish man, is talking about man in terms of what he is apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And the idea is... You know, we see in the book of Romans, especially in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, what you see is this discussion of the flesh and of the spirit. Flesh, spirit. Flesh, spirit. And the flesh in Romans 8 is talking about our sin nature, and the spirit in Romans 8 is talking about the Holy Spirit transforming our minds and thereby transforming the actions that come out of our bodies. Our bodies, instead of being controlled by the flesh, become controlled by the Spirit. They become instruments of the Holy Spirit. They become weapons of the Holy Spirit. And your hands become instruments or weapons of righteousness. So this idea of having the body be controlled by the Holy Spirit, that occurs through sanctification. Well, in the resurrected state, believers are going to be glorified, have no sin at all, and therefore only do righteousness with their bodies. So the resurrected state has the glory of a change of the material structure, but it also has the glory of the removal of all curse and all sin, so there is only righteousness, only blessedness, incorruptible. So that is the contrast. The natural man and the spiritual man. The natural body and the spiritual body. There is a natural body 
and there is a spiritual body. Some people have tried to take this verse and say, well, maybe angels have bodies because maybe those are spiritual bodies. Okay, so that's like saying the spiritual, which is immaterial, and the body, which is material. Maybe we can have a material, non-material body. Anybody see a problem with that? A and non-A body? Right, so that is a nonsense thing. And this fits in with, there's a kind of a general desire to make the spiritual into energies or feelings, or to make it so that there's something like manipulable about spirits um, in terms of the way we can do things. Magic is often this idea of being able to use the physical to, to manipulate the spiritual in a mechanistic way. And so that fits into that desire. So that's a popular interpretation of this. Okay, but the point is that the body is sown a corruptible natural body with, with the problem of the sin indwelling, curse on the body, and it's raised spiritual. It's raised, controlled by the Holy Spirit. For the elect, there is a removal of curse, disobedience, sin. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. So what we have is the material reordering and we also have the moral reordering that occurs. The material and the moral. Verse 45 And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. And you could translate that, made earthy. You have the earth, made earthy. And the second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, as was the earthy man, so also are those who are made of earth, or of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, the earthy man, let us also... Bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, Adam was created in such a way as to fit with his earthly existence and also in the fall, there's indwelling sin, corruption. Christ, the man from heaven, the man who came down, he, having ascended, having been raised, having been glorified, he has a different sort of body. His different sort of body is without corruption. It is totally righteous, and we are going to be like him. The removal of these things. We are being renewed after the image of Christ. We have been following after the image of Adam, who fell. We are going more and more to be sanctified, to chase after the image of of Christ, but we're going to totally, absolutely, without any sort of missing of the mark, exemplify the image of Christ in the resurrected state. So, chapter 15, verse 50. 
Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Okay, so our flesh and blood is not the basis for receiving the kingdom of God. Our corruption is not the basis for receiving the kingdom of God. Instead, there is a receiving of an inheritance by adoption, and we are to be made incorruptible in the resurrected state so that we can receive a kingdom that does not end. Now, we are already receiving it. We are receiving the spiritual man in that we're being sanctified. We have the Holy Spirit in us and we're being made more spiritual. And we are going to receive the inheritance in a full way in the glorified state. So that's what's being laid out here. Verse 51 Behold, I tell you a mystery. What's a mystery? Hopefully, immediately in your head, you thought something that was hidden that is now revealed. When am I going to stop doing that? Never. I'm never going to stop doing that, ever. And when I'm dead, that will haunt you in your dreams. You will always remember a mystery is something that was hidden, and now it's revealed. And you can tell it to your children, your grandchildren, and you can haunt them. Now, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, this is one of the best examples of how a mystery is obviously not something that's ununderstandable. This one's really simple. It says, here's a mystery. The mystery is, we're not all going to die, but we are all going to have our bodies changed. That's it. It's a mystery. Not super complex, not hard to understand. Generally, human beings are going to die. Some of us are not going to die. Who, who are those? Who are the ones that are not going to die? The ones that are still alive when Jesus comes back. But they're still going to be transformed. That's it. That's the mystery. So, it's profound. Yes. Not hard to understand. Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So that last trumpet is when there's this calling of the assembly. Remember trumpets from Moses' writings? What were they for? They were for calling the people together. Jesus is a trumpet too. He's going to call the people together. So this trumpet is going to call everybody together for this great assembly where he's going to have the last judgment. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Okay, so those who are dead will be raised and changed. Those who are alive will be changed. Verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Okay, so the changing of the bodies from a corruptible form to an incorruptible form. Now, this is all stuff that undermines anybody laughing at the idea of a resurrection, because the point is, the body's going to be changed. All the things you think might wear out are not going to be worn out. Why? Because there's going to be a change. Now, here's one of the other things that comes up that's kind of connected to this, the idea of the ordering of matter. You've all heard this. I don't know if it's true or not. Every seven years, what happens to your body? Now, we all we all have heard, every seven years, every cell in your body is supposed to be changed out, right? Okay, so are you the same person seven years and one day from now as you are today? 
I mean, like nothing there is the same, right? Your whole body's different. Is it the same body or not? It's the same body. The idea of it having a continuous existence does not depend upon the particular molecules. It is the idea that they are constructed together and they are associated together, identified in the mind of God as your body. So take this now and apply it to you're going to die, you're going to be buried, your body will turn to dust. Okay? When God reconstructs it, you go, well, maybe some of those molecules were in other people's bodies. Maybe it's not the same one. How would that work? It doesn't matter. Pun intended with the word matter. It doesn't matter. Here's why it doesn't matter. Because the identity is not based upon which molecule set it is. The identity is based upon the structuring of it, the association of it with your mind, and God, in his mind, identifying it as your body. How do things gain their identity? How do we differentiate between things? It's based upon God's design. It's God's decree. It's what he has made a thing to be. So if he has chosen that this is your body as opposed to that, he's the one that identifies what's what. So his resurrecting, creating a body, saying this is your body, associating it with your mind, with your soul, is him resurrecting your body. So there's the issue of the changing of the matter in terms of its form, and there's the issue of the changing of the components or parts. Those are the different types of objections that get raised against the resurrection. So, verse 54, So when this incorruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Okay, well, death is swallowed up in victory. Christ is going to be victorious. He's going to judge the world. He resurrects people and gives them incorruptible bodies. So there is no victory for death. Hades has no victory because death is swallowed up in victory. Whose victory? Christ's. So where is the sting of death? It's gone for the elect. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. So death is awful. Why is death awful? Because we're worried about judgment. Why is death awful? Because we're worried about judgment. This is Hamlet's speech. If life is full of suffering, why not kill yourself? Well, because if we seek to go to that sleep to avoid the pain of life, the question is, what dreams may come in that sleep? And the fear of torment. The fear of torment by a just God. And so, we avoid death knowing that there's a sting to it, or at least fearing that there's a sting to it. But the sting of death is sin because it gives the guilt and the basis for judgment. And the strength of sin to cause us to be guilty comes from the law of God. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we have the victory over death? Because... We don't have the sting of death in sin. Our sins have been paid for. The strength of sin has been broken because the law was kept for us and the debt was paid for us so that all the demands of the law have been satisfied. And so the strength of sin is shattered. 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are given victory over death here 
being given spiritual life. We are given victory over sin here, being justified. We are caused more and more to exercise dominion over sin, over the flesh, over the world, over the devil. And we are caused to have an ultimate and total victory in the resurrection. But we see the advance of the church here as well. So all these victories of various kinds. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Contrast this with, if there is no resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Right? Instead, there is a resurrection, so you know what kind of life you should live? The life where you're steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why is the work not in vain? Because your faith's not in vain. Because it's coherent. It makes sense. It answers the questions. It's true. So we get to chapter 16, and we go into a particular good work. The collection for the saints. Now concerning the collection for the saints, 16 verse 1, As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Okay, so this is not just to Corinth. This is a thing that applies to multiple churches. You must do it. Notice the words must. This is not Paul's preference. It's a must. What's the must? On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So the giving of the money for the collection occurs on the first day of the week. Why? Because that's when the assembly occurs. That's the holy day of convocation. That's the day when the church gets together. Right? This is the new Sabbath, the first day of the week. So this idea that the church gets together. Now, furthermore, what's being talked about here is a collection. This is not the collecting of the tithe. Tithe continues. Tithe is one-tenth of the increase the first fruits, and therefore it's before anything else gets subtracted, including the tax man's portion. So you give one-tenth of your increase. That's not this. This is talking about a voluntary collection for the saints. What's Paul doing? He's collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem. And so why is there an obligation to get this collection? Because they already swore to do it. It's a free will offering. It's a gift. But they already promised to do it. And so their promise to give as they were able, as they were prospered, is something that Paul is relying on. And he's saying, make sure to collect like you said you would so that when I get there, I'll have it to take. So I don't have to go around going, oh, come on, guys, we talked about this. You said you were going to do it, and now you're making me come around and harass everybody again. Right? That's not the point of doing this. The whole point of the promises in the first time was to make it so there was one conversation everybody took care of it. So Paul is saying, here's the administration for it. So the church of Corinth is going to hold the money in trust, have it consolidated together, and give it to be taken to the church in Jerusalem to help them. And Paul is saying, you know, you're going to pick your people to go, and they're going to take it. They're the ones that are going on your behalf. And then Paul's saying he should go with them, or he would like to go with them. So he's not just asking them to hand over the money. He's asking them, you know, send the two or three witnesses that can attest to you how the money was spent. And I'll go as well. So 
For the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Verse 3, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Verse, er, verse 5. Okay, we're moving on to Paul's logistical planning for his own travels. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain, or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. So he's feeling like he's got something to do quickly now. What is he trying to do? He's trying to tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. He's trying to do teaching there in Ephesus. There's a very large church there in Ephesus. And then he's using that time to go so that he can go to Jerusalem to be able to minister to the collect to the assembly of the Jews that are going to be in Jerusalem. So he's going to stay in Ephesus, help that large church, go to Jerusalem, be there for Pentecost, preach to the Jews that are gathered together there, using that as an opportunity to get them to recognize that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 9, For a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So, this great and effective door, is it in Ephesus, or is it at Jerusalem? He has many adversaries in lots of places, so this doesn't really limit it much for Paul. You know, we're all just kind of like, we know Paul, you have lots of adversaries. Which place? I don't know. It could be either. Live like that. One of the best ways to tell how effectively you've lived your life is to figure out how many evil people hate you. If a lot of evil people hate you, you're doing something useful. If no evil people hate you, then what are you doing? Verse 10. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. So don't cause him problems. Don't, Don't make it difficult for him. Don't leave him unprotected from people who would cause him harm. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Right? You get more of what you subsidize and you get less of what you penalize. If you penalize people doing good work and don't protect them, guess what you're going to have? Less people doing good work. If you make it easier for them to do good work, guess what you're going to get? More people doing good work. So that's the encouragement about Timothy. Make it so you don't have to have fear being with you. Why? Because he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him. So despising as opposed to honoring. You get more of what you subsidize, you get less of what you penalize. You despise somebody when they're doing a good job, when they're doing something honorable, you're going to get less of it. That's what we're seeing in our culture now, right? What kind of honorable manhood is generally honored publicly, right? Here's my trope for you. What was the last movie you saw that showed being a head of house, being a patriarch as a good thing? Right, so... We've all been catechizing what fatherhood is supposed to be. Fathers, all the movies you've ever seen basically say, don't control your kids, don't control your wife, don't try to do anything to lead, just be hands off, and that's how you're the nice guy if you just let them do whatever they want and take no responsibility for it and just make sure to subsidize whatever they want. As opposed to exercising discipline, leading, being the guy who they don't like when you are trying to say, hey, don't do this thing, it's evil. We need to do this thing instead. I'm going to lead us to do this. Right? That's what we're called to do. Pastors also are supposed to be really unconcerned about doctrine and practice. Hey, this is what I think, but don't worry about it. You're not going to hear that from me. And I'm going to tell you, I think the Bible says this. 
argue with me. Right? Do, do you think that I get that encouragement from a lot of places? Or do you, you think broader evangelicalism is like, take hard lines, be clear about doctrine, make sure to have a very narrow form of worship, church government matters. Right? Like, these are not the things that you hear. Right? So this idea that what is honored you get more of, what is despised you get less of, what we want to do is to be a city on a hill that honors things that are honorable and despises things that are not honorable. We want to see that with patriarchs, with mothers. We want to see that with church officers. Do not let Timothy be despised. But send him on his journey in peace. Peace doesn't mean just don't harass him. Peace is a reference to blessing and prosperity. right? This idea of send him on his way with blessing and prosperity. That he may come to me. For I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you without, with the brethren. But he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. So they want Apollos to come. Paul encouraged him to come. Paul doesn't have the authority to just tell him to go. And so he's passing along what is said there. He has honored Apollos earlier on in this letter. And he's letting them know what to expect, that Apollos is not going to come right now. Apollos has his reasons for not coming right now. And he's going to come at a different time. Then, verse 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Watch means you look around, you pay attention to what's going on, and you pray for the particular things that are going on. You're on guard about what is happening. And being on guard about what is happening, you pray for the things that need to be prayed about. Standing fast in the faith, you do not abandon any of the doctrine that's been attained to. You hold on to it. Be brave, be strong. Hey, be strong and courageous, uh... Where have you heard that before? That is told over and over again in the Old Testament. We think about it, especially with Joshua. What was Joshua's job? Joshua's job was to conquer the promised land. Be strong and courageous. Be brave. I'm going to go out on a limb. And so that means the same thing as be courageous. Okay? So this idea of be brave and be strong. The idea of do your duty. So watch, be on guard to pray for things, stand fast in the faith, don't abandon anything, be strong and courageous to conquer the place. Do the work. Apply the word. Be brave about it. Be bold about it. Verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. The way this is generally understood is make sure that you have the appropriate feels when you're doing it, right? Feel happy about it. Feel good about it. Make sure that you feel really happy about the people you're doing it to. Feel good when you're doing it. What is love? What's love? What's love? Love is obedience to the law. Love is defined as seeking the good of the thing you love. Right? It's seeking the good of the object. And how do you do that? By doing the law. So do everything with the goal of seeking the good of that person and God and apply the law. Goal means to do everything with the purpose of advancing the good of that person and of God. What's the good of a human? 
good of a human is to know God. So you should do everything in a way so as to encourage people to grow in the knowledge of God. How should you do that? Whatever way you think will be most effective? No. In the way that the law of God requires. So you pursue the goal with the law telling you how. Verse 15. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. So Stephanus, apparently, Stephanus and his household are the first household in Achaia, in Greece, to be converted. His household became the starting point for the church there, or the first fruits of Achaia. They devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, his household. He did, and his household worked with him. So that means hospitality. That means working together to bless people. That means making sure that the law is applied throughout the household. That's what they did. And they sought to minister to the saints. And early on, that would have meant very baby Christians. And it would have also meant Christians passing through. People like Paul. People passing through. And they're coming and they're helping to minister. And what would they do? They would help to order the church. They would help to expand the church by evangelizing. So then Stephanus would be there to catch the pieces, he and his house, to help people to get in order, to nurture, to water, to help it to grow. So this guy has been working for a while. The people in Corinth should appreciate him. He devoted himself to the ministry of the saints. And apparently he's an officer, because the idea is, hey, this is the kind of guy you should have as an officer, the kind of guy you should submit to. Submission is a type of honoring. When you make it a grief for people to rule, that's a penalty. You get less of what you penalize, you get more of what you subsidize. If you make it a joy to rule, you're subsidizing it. You also submit to such, and to everyone who works and labors with us. So there's also Paul, Timothy, Apollos, any of these guys who are the officers that are working and laboring with that apostolic band. These are the types that you should submit to. So he's giving a pattern. Now that pattern is captured for us in 1 Timothy, in chapter 3. We have the qualifications of officers so we can more easily see the types of people that should be submitted to. Verse 17. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For for what was lacking on your part they supplied. So apparently Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus are not at Corinth right now. They are with Paul. And if Paul is talking about Stephanus and trying to honor him, and there's an urging, right? He's exhorting. I exhort you. I urge you. That you should submit to such. Do you think that Stephanus had a hard time leading before? Like if somebody says, you know, it's really easy to lead these people, would it make any sense for Paul to say, I urge you, submit to Stephanus? And we, we saw early on that there was a lot of divisiveness, there's factions, there was this sort of self-aggrandizement that was occurring in Corinth. 
So Stephanus is the kind of guy they should be following. And what we see in Corinth is there are sort of these personality cults. As opposed to using the process for nominating, testing, electing, and ordaining officers, there's these super apostles that are self-ordained, self-proclaimed apostles. And so rather than properly honoring good officers, there's this honoring of illegitimate officers, bad officers, bad teachers. And so this is a part of what Paul is urging here, is honor legitimate authority. Find men that are qualified, submit to them. Now, these guys, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, are with Paul. They've blessed Paul. Paul is saying, thank you for sending them. Thanks for having them serve us. Thanks for having us supply what was lacking. They refreshed my spirit and yours by the encouragement that's coming with this letter. And perhaps also Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus are going back with the letter. Therefore, acknowledge such men. So again, this idea, acknowledge these kinds of men who are refreshing to the souls of the righteous. So an encouragement to honor legitimate authority. Verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that's in their house. So Aquila and Priscilla, they have a church in their house. The churches of Asia are greeting all of these churches are greeting Corinth. This encourages the unity, the connectedness of the body. Verse 20, all the brethren greet you. And that seems to be a, a broad statement in terms of the church. So you have this idea of encouraging honorable acknowledgement and greeting. And then there's this idea of greeting, which encourages relationship. And then there's the encouragement on the local level of strong relationship and intimacy. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And I've talked to you about this before. It's not appropriate for every saint to greet every saint with a kiss. I would not encourage, I would discourage, men coming up to women and giving them a holy kiss. Don't do that. If it's your wife, great. If it's your daughter, great. Apart from that, cool your jets. But, the idea of extending the right hand of fellowship, the idea of embracing men with men, Women, women, the idea of the holy kiss inside of the family is appropriate. And then we can see across time, can we develop a sense of proprietous ability to greet each other well and to build relationships. And there are particular times when you may, outside of the family, grow in comfort with being able to go beyond a handshake. But this idea of the importance of greeting each other warmly and using the symbols of greeting the right hand of fellowship, the embrace, the holy kiss. These are things that are ordinances. That's why they're, they're, they're instituted by God. And so this is a law order thing. The right hand of fellowship, the embrace, the holy kiss. These are ordinances. So I would strongly encourage you, fathers and husbands, give holy kisses inside of your family to encourage a sense of affection giving. A, a, a place, a home, that does not have affection makes it difficult for affection to be shown more broadly. And affection building in the home makes it easier for holy affection giving to occur outside of the home. So 
A child who's raised not receiving handshakes, not being slapped on the back with good job, not receiving hugs, not being kissed by their parents, not being given words of affirmation, you're going to find that those children have a harder time when they get older expressing affection in appropriate ways and giving holy, God-established ordinance affection symbols. And in our society, we've hypersexualized everything. It's hard for us to think about a kiss without it becoming sexual. Okay, so what we need to do is to help people to see the proper use of things and properly ordered homes across time help us to see how those things can be good and beautiful as opposed to just the Hollywood kiss. So I want to encourage you in your homes to do that. That's where the Reformation begins for these things. And so I encourage you, greet each other heartily. Give each other the right hand of fellowship. Embrace each other as appropriate. Men, give each other hugs. Women, give each other hugs. Men, don't go up hugging other men's daughters and wives. Don't do it. But these things, seeking to build relationship and to build connection, giving words, looking for ways to praise each other as appropriate. And I want to encourage in this way, Men, seek to find ways to praise the other men. Women, seek to find praise to, ways to praise the other women. Those are the places where that should really be generally going. Verse 21. Salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Paul promises us that he signs all of his letters. 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed or anathema. Okay, so anathema, accursed, is a calling of curse from God. So the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is keeping the law toward Jesus Christ, right? Well, we can talk about love in two ways. Remember, desiring the good of the object and applying the law. If you have saving faith, you inherently have a valuation of Jesus and you desire his good. Imperfectly, inconsistently. But that's a part of what's given there. So in in that very narrow way, we can talk about love and faith being synonymous. Let me make that abundantly clear. Love, in the broad sense, is obedience to the law. I'm not saying obedience to the law is faith. Love, in the very narrow sense, is entirely a mental activity of valuing something. So sometimes you'll see reformed guys like Jonathan Edwards say, saving faith is love. Okay, now he defines it just the way I did. But when anybody tries to sneak, when anybody tries to say the definition of saving faith includes love, and they're not really clear, like the way I just went like slow motion. Let me get rid of the misunderstanding. Right? If you don't have somebody making it that clear. They are either trying to be unclear or trying to bring in works. Why am I talking about this? Because I have to deal with this text that says, if you don't love Jesus, let you be anathema. That's why I'm talking about it. So, how do we deal with this? Well, in, 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 the sen- in one sense, you could say, everybody is accursed because they break the law in any way, right? Counter to works. Everybody who doesn't love Jesus perfectly, cursed. Is that what Paul is saying? 
I don't think so. I think what he's talking about is love in the very narrow sense of valuing Jesus. Seeing Jesus rightly as he is and seeing him as good. So I think he's talking about the curse that comes from that. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ in that carefully defined way, valuing him in the mind, let him be accursed. Our Lord has come. Now you might, your translation says, O Lord, come. It doesn't make any sense coming off of the anathema statement. You go, if you don't love Jesus, let you be accursed, and then fall to your knees, Lord, come. Hey, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) What does make sense is saying, if you don't love Jesus, you're accursed. Our Lord has come. You see how that makes total sense? It follows in a totally rational way. It's this idea that you need to love Jesus because he is the Lord and he's already come. So that's how that fits together. Verse 23, so that's a... Aramaic phrase brought into the Greek and transliterated. A transliteration is when you take a foreign thing, put it into the letters with the same sounds in a different language. And so then you say it. So um, we don't have a lot in English because we have like the largest vocabulary ever. So we don't need to get words from other languages as much. We kind of just have all the words. However, you'll notice in Spanish, you'll have things like caro, which is just Here's an English word, slap on an O, there you go. And so it's sort of a transliteration almost, where you're just taking a word out of a different language and putting it into that language. So that's what happens here with Maranatha, and it's our Lord has come. Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So he's calling on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be given to them. So the salvation that comes and also the gifting that comes. And then furthermore, his love, the, the, the work that he's done would bear fruit with them, including the work of writing this letter. And so he's asking that it would be with them that his love would be with them in Christ so that Christ would get the glory and that that work of love would be acceptable and useful in Christ and in the name of Christ. And so he ends it with a statement of amen, which we all remember, amen means let it be. And you say it at the end of a prayer, and the idea of saying it at the end of a prayer is to affirm the prayer. Alternately, you say it at the end of a statement to emphasize it. So he is either affirming the prayer he just made in writing, or he is emphasizing it and the truth of the whole letter. There we are. We finished 1 Corinthians. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.